You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, um, continuing on to chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men, men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, so wonderful to be with you. Thank you for the kind invitation to come. My name is Dave. I am the youth minister at City on a Hill Geelong. So I bring you grace and peace from the land flowing with milk and honey and AFL premierships. Uh, they send their love and wanted to make sure I mentioned the football. So uh, it is great to be with you. Um, we're in 2 Corinthians, continuing our series in this fantastic book. So as we dive in, why don't we pray together? God, as we gather uh, with all of our church family together, young and old men and women, we, we thank you that you use all of us. We're reminded of the way you can use a little boy's lunchbox with a few fish and some loaves to feed thousands. We marvel at your power in that, and we pray you might do something similar now. Would you take my words and feed us, make them more than they are? Would you take the next few minutes and nourish us by your power and for the glory of your Son? And all of God's people said together, Amen. Well, uh, when I started Bible college, I started with Greek. That's what they make you do, I think, to make you more prayerful through the journey of the next few years. Uh, but I did two years of Greek and I worked pretty hard at Greek. And by the end of those two years, I knew two things for sure. The first one, I'm really very bad at Greek. I just could not get the hang of it. No matter how hard I tried, it didn't make any sense to me. But the second thing I learned was even worse. Not only am I really bad at Greek, I also learned I'm not that good at English either. 
Because as you learn another language, you realize there's all these rules in English that you never properly got your head around. And so the teacher would say, all right, can we uh, conjugate this verb? And I'd say, sure, but could you conjugate that verb first? Because I just don't understand what that means. And as we went on, I realized my English is lacking and maybe from time to time I need a refresher course. And I start here because what we're doing in our passage today is camping out in two metaphors. We're going to spend most of our time in one metaphor, a little bit of time at the end in a second metaphor. But before we do it, I thought it would be helpful if you're anything like me to have a little crash course in what a metaphor is for. Okay, so I've got some visual aids about how metaphors work. Uh, The first one is this. So it's like a Venn diagram. A metaphor is when you take two ideas and you work out the semantic range or, or the meaning of those two ideas and work out where they overlap and use that overlap to make like a really significant emotional point, right? So David says, God is my rock. Two ideas there, it's God and a rock. So what's the metaphor for? Well, there's all sorts of meanings with the word God, all sorts of concepts wrapped up in the idea like he's holy, he's loving, he's all-knowing, none of which you can say about a rock with any confidence, right? A rock, on the other hand, usually grey, there's numerous rocks and rocks are good for throwing at stuff, none of which you could say about God. But that's not what David's trying to say when he says God is my rock. He's trying to say there's something strong, something reliable, something safe about God that makes him like a rock. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how a metaphor works. That's really helpful to keep in mind as we dive into the start of our passage and look at this idea of a triumphal procession. So picture this. The crowd has begun to gather in the street outside of your home. And before long, all the road is heaving with people and the nervous excitement is beginning to build because rumour has begun to spread that they're back. And before long, you can hear it in the distance, the, the applause, and it builds and it builds until you can hear the distinct sound of trumpets announcing their arrival. And after the sound comes the smell. You can smell the scent of victory, the incense wafting through the seat, uh, through the streets to announce that they're here and they've won. And after the sounds and the smells come the sight. The soldiers marching tall with smiles on their faces and pride in their eyes. The emperor riding in on his chariot. This is a triumphal procession. Now, uh, we have some experience with this in Geelong. (laughs) Not that long ago, on a Sunday morning in late September, a bus rode through the main streets of Geelong. I know this because church attendance was significantly down that morning. Joel Selwood on his chariot holding up the cup of victory. The streets lined with people singing his praise. This was kind of like a triumphal procession. So they're not that different. And Paul mentions triumphal processions in verse 14 for very particular purposes. He wants to use it as a metaphor for his ministry. Verse 14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of him, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession, he says. Here comes the metaphor. 
Christ is leading us in a procession like this. And, and when Paul uses this metaphor, I think Paul wants to point out three particular things in the overlap between his ministry and a procession like this. And the first one is kind of easy. It's victory. That's one of the big ideas in this passage, victory. Jesus has won a great victory. That's a huge chunk of the Christian message and has been for 2,000 years that he lived and died and then rose again as the King and Lord of everything. Satan, sin, death, demons conquered and defeated. This is our victory. This is the message we believe and proclaim as Christians and, and only like two pages earlier in your Bible. Paul writes these majestic words to describe this victory and even a kind of triumphal procession. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The sound is there again. The trumpet will sound The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And then he goes on. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has won a great victory, but but we're wrapped up in it too. That's why Paul says, thanks be to God for this victory, because our death is defeated. Our sin is forgiven. Mortality is just not our problem anymore. And that's good news of great joy worth celebrating. So victory is the first thing he wants to draw attention to with this metaphor. But the second thing is a little more abstract. It's the aroma. See, everyone would know that in every good triumphal procession, you had the sounds and you had the sights, but you also had a smell. They would light incense and waft it through the streets ahead of the parade so that people would know they're coming. It was like a little scented pop-up notification for all the people that they might know the victory is won and we're here to celebrate. And Paul means to draw a parallel with this smell. He says, I'm the smell. I'm the aroma. I'm the fragrance. I'm sent out to be a sign and symbol, a little scented pop-up notification to all people that a great victory has been won. And so it's his job, his mission to, to be wafting through the world, telling anyone and everyone who will listen that Jesus wins. Here's the thing about this fragrance. People are going to respond to it in different ways, says Paul. It says in verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, which is everybody. Everybody smells this. But then in verse 16, To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. To some, this fragrance is going to smell like life, and to some it will smell like death. If you like it, it's the coriander of the kingdom because to some it is exactly what's needed, a delicious taste full of great joy and excitement, and to others it just tastes like soap. But this 
this gospel message and the messengers of it bring with them this scent. Wherever they go, they are the aroma. And to many, it's undeniably beautiful. It smells like a far-off foreign land and it smells like home all at the same time somehow. And it's attractive. It draws people in, but but at the same time to others, it's off-putting and it smells like the taste of soap. It's anything but sweet. It, it, it's confronting Be, because it's all your worst fears realized that maybe Jesus is real and he is the king and the Lord of everything and I have not lived like that's true. You see how good news that Jesus wins might be confronting to some people, right? So unpleasant is the smell to some that it smells like death and, and I think that's because it is. It really is a matter of life and death. The way you respond to the message of Jesus and his victory, it's everything. Well, it's not a huge jump to see that as Christians, we're the smell. We too are the aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ, which is to say that God chooses to make known the wonderful news of Christ through you. That's your job. He chose you for that, to waft through the world, speaking to anyone and everyone who will listen, that Jesus wins. You're a sign and symbol of his great victory. Jesus says much the same when he calls us the light of the world or the salt of the earth, or if you like, a city on a hill. The whole point is that we're to be seen, to be distinct, to be noticed among the world. And just like you don't light a lamp and then cover it so that no one can see it, don't hide your smell. Don't deodorize away your fragrance. Don't pretend that faith is not that important to you. Because triumphal processions are never a matter of private, personal preference. This is exactly the sort of thing you shout from the rooftops. It's good news of great joy for all people and they need to know about it. But as we do that, let's not be surprised if we get different reactions. To some It's going to be like with a taste of soap and they'll treat you as much too. But that's to be expected. Jesus was the same, wasn't he? Loved by some, rejected by others. What makes us think it'll be any different? So we shouldn't be surprised if if people treat us with suspicion or even distaste, but neither neither should we be surprised if there's something outrageously compelling about a simple, humble, faithful, public Christian life. There's something about the scent that draws people in because it's the offer of life. Don't be surprised if you just being you, openly Christian at work or study with friends and family, 
don't be surprised if that actually makes a difference to somebody's eternity. That might even be why you're here tonight. It's because there's someone in your life who smells a bit different and and you can't put your finger on it. You don't know what it is about them. You just know that it's compelling and so you followed your nose. You wanted to find out what's going on there, that their life seems so much more hopeful, so much more resilient. It's not free of suffering, but, but they stay afloat better than I do. You'd be amazed how many people come to church with no idea why they got here. That they just can't explain it, but, but it could be that this is what's going on. That God's drawing you in with the aroma through friends or family or colleagues that are strangely compelling. And if that is your story, I want to say, follow your nose. Keep asking these questions because the questions are welcome here. Your vulnerabilities are welcome here. And our role as a church community in the world is to help you follow your nose to follow the smell all the way to its source and find life. Because that's our job. That's our role, Paul says. We are to be the aroma. So, So don't feel guilty for helping us do the thing we're supposed to be doing. You cannot ask too many questions for the Christian faith. Bring them and ask them. Get to the bottom of this. And for the rest of us, keep being the aroma. Paul says it kind of another way later in the letter. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God sends us into the world to be his ambassadors, which means to speak and act on his behalf with his authority which makes us not just his heralds, but also his hostage negotiators as we plead for people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. The thing about all of that, though, is it's a fairly hefty job description, isn't it? That's a lot of pressure, that you're the ambassador for the kingdom. That's your job. You speak and act for God in the world. And if you feel a little bit overwhelmed by that, you're in really good company. Because Paul asks a question at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who on earth is sufficient for these things? This weight is far too much for me. This task is far too important. That This is way above my pay grade. Well, this is where the third aspect of the triumphal procession comes in. As Paul asks, who is sufficient for these things? The answer is revealing. So so just to be clear, what we're supposed to picture in verse 14 when he mentions the triumphal procession is not just the sound and it's not just the smell. There's also a sight here that's striking. So, So picture it again. You've got at the front the soldiers standing tall, smiles on their faces, They've won a great battle. At the back, you've got the emperor on his chariot riding in in glory. But in the middle of every good triumphal procession were the spoils of war. Those who have been captured and conquered. 
the dignitaries, the politicians, the businessmen of a far-off land who lost the war and are now paraded through the street in chains like slaves so that everyone might know the might of this emperor. Now here's the kicker. When Paul talks about the triumphal procession, he means to say that he is one of those slaves. That's his role in the parade. It's not the victorious soldier. It's certainly not the great emperor. No, he's simply one who's been conquered. That's what he has to offer here. Now, that's a striking kind of idea, but but it's even more striking when you understand the context of 2 Corinthians. You, You would have heard last week that there were some super apostles or teachers in town who looked kind of victorious by themselves. They had something triumphant about them. They had great haircuts, nice clothes. They stood tall. They spoke well. And they just looked powerful. And so it's got the Corinthians asking, well, they look victorious. What makes you think we should listen to you, Paul? Because there's something about something triumphant about them that, that you just don't have. Why should we follow you and not them? I'm not sure you're adequate enough for us. And here's Paul's response. Exactly. That's exactly right. I know they look more triumphant than I do. I know they look more powerful. I know they look more victorious. But that's the point. I am not the one who won the victory here. If anything, I was fighting for the other side. But thanks be to God, I've been conquered. I've been captured. And now my role in this whole parade is just to point to his glory and not my own. See, what Paul's doing with this metaphor is saying it's not his strength that makes him useful. It's his weakness. That's what he's trying to draw attention to because this parade is just not about him. It's because he's weak. It's because he's been conquered, because he's been captured and is now the slave of someone else that he can be useful in this whole thing because his glory is to display the strength of someone else. That's his role here, which means in a roundabout way, he is sufficient. For this task. He's not sufficient for it by himself, but God has made him sufficient. And his sufficiency comes from God. You see it there in chapter 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So how could Paul be sufficient for this task of being God's ambassador in the world? Well, it's through his weakness that God makes him useful. It's through his inadequacy that God demonstrates his adequacy. Which means if you feel unqualified for this task, you're right. 
and that's okay. You are not sufficient for this, and neither am I. Growing up, my dad was in ministry. He still is. And, uh, and I could not understand what he did for a job. As a little kid, he'd go off to work and I'd try and get a straight answer out of him. Dad, what do you do every day? And he was so vague that I started suspecting he might be some sort of spy. Because he'd say, well, I don't know. I just, I go and I, I read the Bible with someone. And then I go to a small group and we read the Bible some more. And then I meet with some people for lunch. And, and then I go and we pray for a bit. And then I read the Bible with some more people. And to me, that that just sounded so easy. Like, Dad, why are you coming home so tired every night if that's all you do? But now that I work in ministry too as a job, I'm starting to understand what's going on there. Because it is an incredible privilege to get to do what I do for the amount of time that I get to do it each week. To, To see... God's work in people's lives, to have a front row seat to that is unreal. And at the same time, I am absolutely in over my head every single day. I come face to face with my insufficiency for this job all the time. And I reckon it's most true in preaching. Because I've noticed over the last couple of years that that the sermons I feel the worst about seem to be the ones that God uses the most. And that's been true for a long time. At first it was alarming because I thought, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And then it was a bit annoying because <laughs> you just feel so helpless. But, but now I'm starting to see maybe, maybe that's how it's supposed to be. Maybe that's just how God works, not through my strength, my cleverness, my fledgling Greek skills. It's through my weakness that God shows himself to be strong. God's power looks greater when he can use weak people to do strong things. But that that creates a weird paradox because it also means that as a weak person, you can be really confident. Because the question changes. It's no longer, am I sufficient for this? It's, is he? And so if you struggle with underconfidence, you can take your eyes off yourself and look to the one who wins and start to walk a little bit taller, start to be a little more bold. So you see a few times in this passage, Paul talks of his confidence. Verse 4, such is the confidence we have towards God. Or verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, he says. And so you can hold these two things together. We are not sufficient for for this, but we are very confident. Because the whole point is, it's just not about us. It's not about us. It's about him. Now, a word on overconfidence. As Australians, we just hate overconfidence. We can smell pride a mile off and we have no time for it. We know that it's unattractive and it's not good for us. And as Christians, we go even further. We think pride is sinful because God's the only one worthy of glory, right? 
But I have noticed an interesting trend, particularly amongst younger Christians, but I think it rings true for everyone, that, that we can be so concerned with not being proud that the fear of pride stops us from doing good and godly things. And so people refuse to step into leadership opportunities because they're nervous they might fall prey to their pride. They, they don't step into ministry opportunities because they don't want to become proud. Or worse, they don't want to look like they're proud to other people. I want to suggest that's a mistake. What you want to do is do the thing and don't be proud. Do the good and godly thing and don't be proud about it. And here's the secret to that. The antidote to pride is boasting. The antidote to your pride is boasting about someone far bigger and better than yourself. In Christian ministry of any kind, there is no room for pride, but there's every reason for confidence because it's not about us. It's about him. And so we can get in the game with boldness and confidence even, not because we back ourselves, but because we know that in our weakness, he is sufficient for these things. So there's the three elements to this metaphor the victory of Christ, the aroma of Christ, which is us, and then the way our weakness points to his strength. As we move to the second metaphor, though, I'm aware that there's like a glaringly obvious question we haven't answered at any point in this sermon, and it's this. What is ministry? Paul's talking about ministry, this whole passage, but but what is he talking about when he talks about ministry? Well, I think chapter 3 begins to help us as we come to this significantly shorter section of the sermon. Chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So what we think is happening is that these super apostles, these teachers in town, have brought with them letters of recommendation, like a resume or a CV from other people to say, hey, here's why you should listen to us and follow us. And the Corinthians have started asking, well... Hey, Paul, where's your letter? They've got an impressive CV. What about you? They've given us every reason on paper to listen to them. What have you got to offer us? Now, this is a little bit silly if you think about it. Certainly painfully ironic because at the bottom of it, there's a church asking Paul to justify himself as a church planter to the church that he planted. But Paul doesn't take the bait and fly off the handle and say, that's so dumb, how dare you ask that? Instead, Paul opens the hood on the way he thinks about ministry in a way that's just so incredibly helpful for us. Look look at verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show your letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. It's you, he says. Where's the evidence for my ministry? What's the reason you should listen? Well, look around. You want to know if there's anything good about my ministry, 
Look around, because it's you. You're the ministry. You want to know if I'm worth listening to, look at the people who listened. See if God has done anything in their hearts. Because I'm not sufficient for this work, Paul says, not by myself. But God does his work through me anyway. And he does it by changing and transforming human hearts. Now, the way Paul talks about his ministry is so helpful for us because we're in danger of all sorts of priorities in ministry that are a little bit off. But but I think if we were to clarify a takeaway for ourselves as a Christian community, it would be this. Paul's ministry teaches us that people are always more important than programs. People are more important than programs. So when Paul's asked to justify his ministry, he does not talk about the budget. He doesn't talk about how many services they have on a Sunday or or the building they've started meeting in, as good as those blessings are, because his ministry is marked by people and the transformation of their hearts. That's what all of this is about. Not just for him, but for us as well. Lives being changed by the news of Jesus and his victory. Last week, I got to go to a ministry conference with a whole bunch of other people working in ministry. And it's a very niche kind of target audience, but I was right in the center of it. And so I was having a great time catching up with old friends and mentors. But but as people in ministry, you get 90 seconds into every conversation and the same question happens. How's church going? How's church going? What would you say to that question? Someone asked you how church is going. What what evidence would you provide? You could talk about the fantastic music, the great blessing of a new building. You could talk about the budget. You could talk about how the teachings are 10 out of 10 normally, and then occasionally you have guest preachers too. If someone asks you, what would you say? Because I know for me the temptation is to go straight to all of those things, which are all about programs. And I wonder if for me that reveals something about my priorities that's a little bit skewed, that it's so much easier to measure programs that I forget to prioritize people. Thank God I was preparing a sermon on 2 Corinthians 3 when I was at the conference because I could notice exactly how quickly my head and my heart went there. But but if I talk about programs as an answer to that question, it's like if you said, Dave, tell me about your family. And I said, I'd love to. We have a three-bedroom house. Wednesday nights, takeaway night, Friday morning, swimming lessons. We've got two cars and, yep, I've got photos. Here they are, the bank accounts. That's just missing the point, isn't it? If you ask about my family, I'm going to talk about people every time. I have a thousand photos of my children. You're going to see all of them, whether you want to or not. I'm going to tell you about Edie, who's four and a half, and she's learning to read. And she's getting it. I'll tell you about Freya, who's two and a half, and she's learning not to hit Edie so much as a way of expressing her feelings. But she's growing too. 
because families are all about people. And churches are families. Now, we need programs. Don't get me wrong. If you had two or 300 people in your family, you too would have a morning tea roster. But here's how to think about the programs. Don't do away with them. We need them for one another. But, but here's how to think about every single program you have. They're just a way of organizing love. That's what a program's for. That's what every roster is for. That's what every ministry of this church is for. It's to help us organize love for one another and the world around us. Now, programs are always and only a means to an end, and the end is loving and serving people with the gospel, which means you should absolutely get involved in a roster if you can. It's the best way we know how to organize love for one another. If you have any capacity for it, get in the game. But it also means there are great reasons not to be on any rosters because you're way too busy loving people. If you're, if you're a young parent, you'll often feel the guilt of not being as involved as you like. But if that's you, remember, programs are a means to an end. All you've done is skip straight to the end of loving little people with the gospel. The fear of pride is a bad reason not to get involved in ministry. But being too busy loving people, that, that's a great reason to stay off as many rosters as you can. The point is, together with all of our gifts, with all of our diversity, with all of our time and opportunities, that we're seeking to love one another towards Jesus, not so we can say how big our church has become, but so that we could see lives transformed by the good news that Jesus wins. And as we do that, we do not think for a second that we're sufficient. We can't pull that off. We can't change lives no matter how organized we get. But in our weakness, God can and he does and he will show himself to be very, very strong. And so we keep turning up and serving so that in our weakness we might point to the strength of Jesus who won the great victory. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we marvel that Jesus has risen from the dead as the Lord and King of all creation, and we are blown away that he invites us into that victory. So we ask we would experience the joy of the fact that Jesus wins, the relief of his great victory. And we pray that we would be the aroma of that victory to the world. Would you use us in our weakness to point to your strength and to the glory of your Son? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.